Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Philip Pilkington, who works in investment management in the City of London, UK. We talk about the heterodox approach to understanding economics, as well as determinism and free will in economics. Philip also discusses the content of his forthcoming book, The Reformation in Economics. You can check out all the links, resources and books mentioned in this episode at the show notes page at economicrockstar.com forward slash Philip Pilkington or check out the back catalogue of episodes at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Just to let you know that the sound quality is not the best in this episode, so I hope you bear with us while we're having our conversation, and I hope it doesn't take away from your enjoyment of the show. Thanks again for joining me this week, and I hope you enjoy this episode that I brought to you. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. I really strongly make the case that we shouldn't be interested in human psychology as economists. Now, Paul Samuelson makes the same case, but then slips in a big utility maximizing psychology. Into it. So he's just lying. I actually mean it. I don't think we should be looking at individual behavior at all. I think that's what psychologists should do. I think if you want to do that, you should become a psychologist. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Philip Pelkinton join me today. Hi, Philip. Welcome to the show. Hi, how's it going? I'm very well. Thanks, Philip, for joining me. Uh, Philip Pilkington works in investment and has contributed to numerous online and print media outlets as a freelance economic journalist. Philip ran a popular economics blog called FixingTheEconomist.wordpress.com and will be releasing his book, The Reformation in Economics, quite soon. Philip earned his BA in Journalism from the Independent Colleges as well as his MA in Economics from Kingston University. All views expressed by Philip within this episode are his own, are, are not representative of the firm in which he works. And Philip, you're a fellow Irishman living in London City. I am. I'm, I'm from Dublin uh, originally and I moved to London about four, four and a half years ago to go to Kingston because they had uh, alternative economics programs there, which I was very interested in. And I didn't realize until I did the intro there recently that you did your MA in Kingston. And we have a link with Professor Steve Keane. I interviewed him twice before on the episode. So you're, I'm sure you know Steve Keane. I do. Uh, I was actually at Kingston before Steve came. Um, they, they, they were running um, uh, heterodox programs. Uh, the, the guy in charge was called Engelbert Stockhammer, an Austrian post-Keynesian economist. And uh, so I actually went there. Before that, and there was only two students there for the master's program who were there specifically for the uh, alternative economics program. But since then, uh, Steve's come in and he's brought loads of people and I go down there every now and again. And it, there's a great, great crowd. It's really kicking off down there. There's a lot of kind of heterodox economics students and everything. And I think it's going to turn into a proper kind of heterodox school on the British Isles, which is great. And what do you mean by heterodox? Well, they they teach a variety of approaches of approaches. Then uh, they 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 um they, uh, the the faculty is mainly post Keynesian. Uh, Steve Keane obviously being quite well known for that, and Engelbert Stockhammer actually being quite well known within post Keynesian circles for his um as a macroeconomist and as an empirical macroeconomist. Um, and he also works for the International Labour Organization. Um, so he works with the European Trade Unions, but um. 
uh, they, they, they've kind of expanded out now because of the student movement, um, which uh, I have some involvement with. I'm, I'm on the uh, uh, Skidowski Reform Committee over here. Uh, but um, they, they, they've kind of been demanding uh, pluralism uh, as, as their main thing. So rather than pushing one particular um, uh, economic school of thought, they say, well, we should teach this like um, like like everything else is taught, like sociology or psychology or anything like that, and, and show that there are competing schools of thought. And it's not a monolithic discipline like, say, physics, where there's only really one brand of, of physics, at least at the base level. Obviously, at the very high level, there's all these string theories and all that. But at, at a base level, there's only one physics, whereas they're making the case, now economics is a human science, and there's various different perspectives on it. And I think um, I think Kingston's starting to embrace that. Um, Steve has started running running programs now, uh, lectures and so forth, where he goes through the different schools of thought and everything like that. And I think it's a fantastic idea. I mean, I've learned set ideas about economics, but uh, I think it's worth reading uh, reading any every school of thought in economics. And and I think you can develop a lot by by trying to understand what you agree and what you disagree with, and why you agree and why you disagree with things. I think that's a much better learning experience than being handed a, uh, a, a, a dogmatic book, as it were. And uh, although my, my book isn't really about schools of thought, uh, I, I did try and wind back from, from taking too partisan a position. At least I hope I did. And when you wrote your book, which is called uh, Reformation in Economics, how did you try to take apart all the schools of thought and it's probably easy when you're not easy, but when you have a program that's pluralistic in its approach, how did you not find a, a ground or or not get grounded in one particular theory, or or did you? Are you would you be considered a Keynesian, a post-Keynesian as well, or more a pluralist? And accepting all the disciplines. Yeah, I mean the 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 book is 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 funny in a sense. I suppose it's not. It's not really about it, it. It's not a book on on different schools of thought, really per se. I mean, I, I I try and give everything a fair hearing as far as it can be on the issues that I deal with. But I was kind of more interested in um, in the foundations of economic thought itself. Uh, I don't. I think the book is very consistent with um, pluralism, and I I think my blog was as well. At least I hope it was. Other people can judge that, I guess. But. Um, what I was kind of interested in in the book was to was to try and understand really like what economics is and and really strip it right down to its fundamentals and 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 try and pick them apart and, and see where they were and, and a big concern that I had was that that economics might actually be mainly an ideology uh, by ideology I don't mean um, kind of a Marxist phrase where you have um, you know the the, the the working class ideology and the bourgeois ideology or anything like that. I, I more so mean kind of a, um, uh, a a way that people frame the world to themselves that influences how they think about uh, things around them. So more similar to I'd say maybe um, neoliberalism will be an ideology or something like that, where where you have cer- certain things that you that 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 you're not really able to talk about within the ideology, so they sort of get flushed out. Um, I suppose I suppose this is kind of going back to the French post-structuralists and so forth. Um, but uh, I, I was very interested in that because, I mean, John Robinson, the, the, the post-Keynesian economist, used to always say that, that uh, 
that economics was so loaded to the, to the gills with ideology. And I found that more and more. Uh, and what I really found was that it wasn't particularly a left-wing or a right-wing ideology. And that, that's why maybe um, uh, comparing it to, to political ideologies is a little misleading. But rather that it was kind of a, um, a sort of a filtering mechanism for how people view the world. And some of that, some of that filtering mechanism, well, in fact, all of it that I consider ideology isn't actually based on, on um, anything resembling uh, rationalistic or scientific method. It's sort of a, um, uh, I wouldn't say a parody of rationalistic or scientific method, but it uses the veneer of um, scientific or rationalistic method to push something else, which is a view of the world, which is, um, in a sense, arbitrary, um, and, and which is which I just view as limiting. And, and I suppose that's why I call the book The Reformation in Economics, because it's almost like I kind of see... Um, economics, mainly mainstream neoclassical economics, but all economics in a sense, as being this kind of um, kind of closed book, like like the Catholic Church used to treat the Bible, you know, and then and then obviously the, the, the Reformation occurs and they say, well hang on a minute, let's let's critically examine this. And it becomes less this kind of dogmatic means to prop up um, authority in a sense. And uh, um, and more uh, 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 something that you can use to, to kind of inquire about about the world around you. And um, what I tried to sort through in the book was, at least in the first half, and then the second half is more kind of positive what we should do kind of stuff, but to try and sift through what was ideology and what was not ideology. And, and the stuff that is not ideology is sort of purified concepts, which you can actually use to uh, understand the world around you, and which won't... Um, uh, drag you into a particular worldview or or impose anything on the way you think about the world. When I saw the title of the book, The Reformation in Economics, I, get, I was just brought back to Martin Luther's The Protestant Reformation, and you made a, a, that link there uh, previously. And is this something that you feel is in economics we're moving toward a, that particular ideology, or you, you, as you mentioned, a rationalistic inquiry, there's maybe a non-dogmatic approach in which we are going to take forward or understand when it comes to economics, that it's not all about perhaps numbers and a, a certain inquiry in which we can calculate and find out a desired outcome based on perhaps a deterministic model as opposed to, again, something that might be considered free will in terms of our decision-making and choices that we have. I, I suppose that's the irony of the title, that I really wanted to use the analogy to the Reformation because I, I think I think uh, disciplines like economics, as I said, do um, uh, uh, operate like ideologies, and they are quite similar to the structures of various religions, I think, rather than physics. I think that is a, probably a better analogy for what actually exists today. Um but it's kind of ironic in a sense because uh, I am quite aware of the debates around the Reformation, and actually I refer to them at the end of the book. Uh, and I actually, I, I wouldn't be on Luther's side at all. <laughs> he's, he's this deterministic guy who thinks everybody's kind of shackled, and that there's this kind of deterministic outcome in the world. And um, his, his, the person he's debating, who um, is a, is critical, but but um, defends the church is is uh, Erasmus, and Erasmus, of course, thinks that there's uh, free will and um, and 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 all that. And this is a huge um, uh, uh, issue in economics. Do we have this deterministic view of the world where 
we actually understand the world to work in terms of these set laws, just like um, uh, gravity or inverse squares laws in physics operate, which are immutable. We can't change them. We, we, we have no capacity to change those physical laws and physical constants and so forth. Um, and so there is an element of determinism there that, that is beyond, uh, beyond, beyond ourselves. Um, and of course, that's what Luther is arguing in, in terms of people, and that's what mainstream economics today, and in fact, I think most economics today, makes the assumption that people are in, in some way um, cast into a deterministic framework. In fact, I'd say most social sciences actually make those assumptions, barring a few um, offshoots in certain disciplines. But I, I, I don't believe that. I, I believe um, uh, uh, metaphysically, I suppose, in free will, and, but... Beyond that just being some sort of a, a principle philosophical position, which wouldn't really mean much, it actually is very, um, it has very uh, uh, distinct implications for how you, you do economics and how you understand that. Because if the world is not structured in a deterministic way, and if there is some sort of freedom of choice, this has very, very profound implications for um, how we can understand economics. For example, any... Um, a strong argument that I make in the book is any any attempt to ground economics in some law of uh, human behavior, for example, uh, quasi-psychological utility maximizing law or anything of that sort, just won't work. Because not only do people not act like that, I think everyone's becoming increasingly aware that the utility maximizer is a silly way of looking at things. And Daniel Kahneman and all them, have, he's won a Nobel Prize saying that people have behavioral biases and so forth. But beyond that, even, I mean, I'd go one step further and just say people cannot act like that. They, if, if you think through the principles of those types of um, deterministic um, um, uh, uh, ways of framing human behavior, they, they, uh, and, and, then you, and then you say, okay, well, maybe people are free well and the history is continuing and so forth. They just simply won't work um, because, for example, in order for... Um, an equilibrium even in a, at a microeconomic level where a consumer makes a, um, a, a choice to, to purchase one thing over another and satisfy the utility and so forth. They sort of have to know the future. I, I know that sounds bizarre on its face for anyone who's done uh, micro at, a, at an undergraduate level or anything, but if you, if you really think through these things, they kind of do. I have an example in the book where I say um, somebody goes and buys sunglasses, right? And, uh, and, and, of course, the utility guy will say, well, they weigh up the, um, the price of the sunglasses with the price of all the other goods, the Playstations and the, and the food and the clothes and everything like that. And they choose the sunglasses based on their utility. And the utility is thought to be an objective uh, measure of satisfaction relative to the other goods. Well, in order to get a real measure, if we want to actually be you know, proper, uh, properly um, quantitative here, the, the, the person would have to know how many sunny days there's going to be in the future, you know? I mean, in order, you know, to know how much they're going to use the sunglasses. It's a relatively, so, and of course, if as anyone knows, who knows anything about weather forecasting, we can only project weather a couple of days out, and after that, chaotic day, not dynamics slip in, and you can't predict anymore. And you know that. Everyone knows that just from watching the weather forecast. They're only right a couple of days out, even then, they're kind of shaky. So, even just that as an example, it's a silly example, but it's kind of illustrative. And if you, and the more you start thinking in those terms, the more you realize that a lot of economic on here just unwinds. For example, 
the sunglasses thing may seem like a minor issue, but in, in, in contemporary mainstream macroeconomics, um, uh, it's assumed that interest rates are, are set in line with what's called time preference. And time preference is, 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 um, is, is basically um, you, you thinking how much something's worth to you now versus thinking how much something's worth to you in the future, and that forms the basis of your savings decisions. Well, if you don't know the future, you don't know what it's going to be worth to you then. For example, if I am holding money right now, I kind of know what that money's worth to me now in terms of what I can buy with it and so forth. If I say, well, I'm going to save it for the next five years, I don't know what it's going to be worth to me in five years because the economy could be doing great in five years or World War III could have happened and everything's desolate, you know what I mean? And then the money's not worth anything to me. So these are extreme examples, but if you actually tease out the implications of mainstream theory quite carefully, you can show that this simple assumption of not knowing the future, the future being inherently impossible to know, humans having free will, these kind of basic assertions, which are, are pretty much true. I mean, we, all the evidence suggests that they're true. Just unwind the theory in a way that it becomes mumbo-jumbo. Just to clarify a few things then on the differences between determinism and free will. I know you gave an example there, but determinism would be strongly proposed by behaviorists, as you mentioned, Daniel Kahneman earlier. And I'm sure concepts like free will and motivation, they are typically dismissed as illusions that might disguise the real causes of human behavior. And I think the main proponent of someone like that would be Skinner. Yeah, yeah. And like economics is almost becoming a, a murky ground of of um how could I say it? It's becoming a murky ground of education and learning and understanding because you have so many schools of thought and influences from different thinkers, as you mentioned, it's not black and white like physics, and it, it becomes quite confusing at times. And we have to wade through all that. And I think your book is kind of creating a thesis around all of that understanding, looking at the methodologies and the models, and also, as you put it, deconstructing marginalist microeconomics, even though it's you talk about macro as well. So how do we all fit in in terms of where this is going to take us? I mean, look, you mentioned Skinner and so forth there. And as you say, a deterministic view is 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 probably inherent in most social sciences, not just economics. Economics carries it into almost absurd territories. It sort of pushes the most um, absurd pseudoscientific aspects of other social sciences to their absolute end point. And that's almost, in a sense, what attracted me to economics, that it was, it was the most egregious example of this, of what I think is a very silly thing to do. The, the fact of the matter is that, that assuming determinism in any social science, is, it's an a priori premise. It's, it's not based on any evidence. It's not based on anything else. It's based on an, a sing, singular view of the world where you assume that things are deterministic. And because things are deterministic in the physical universe, although... At very high level physics, things become indeterminate, but they forget about that and they say, okay, well, if things are deterministic um, in, you know, Newtonian physics, I suppose, then they must be deterministic everywhere else. There's no reason to assume this. There's no logical reason. And anytime you actually pin anyone down that believes in this stuff um, and, and, and ask them, well, why, 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 how can you justify that 
that prior, which is completely non-controversial, you know, which is completely controversial. It's not like anyone hasn't disagreed with it. People have been disagreeing with it for years. How do you actually justify that? There is no justification, and you find this everywhere. So I guess moving forward, my concern is that it won't happen, that there's something in in people that needs this, not everybody, but in 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 certain people, and perhaps even we as a society need to need to order our human universes or something like that um, by clinging to these deterministic ideologies, whether they involve uh, a Lutheran God or whether they involve you know the hidden hand of the market or the utility maximizing consumer and so forth, and and out of them you tend to get um, just like out of a church in the Middle Ages today, out of economics you get um, various pronouncements on, on morality. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's really interesting in that regard that you've probably noticed as well. I think everyone's got to notice at this stage that sometimes when you read in a, a magazine like The Economist, you're kind of half the time you're getting commentary on economic trends and GDP. And I'm fine with all that. I mean, I don't think The Economist is a particularly great magazine, but fine with all that. I mean, I think those are interesting points that further our knowledge, knowing about um, spending growth in the economy and so forth. But then suddenly you turn over the page and, and you're kind of being uh, lectured on utilitarian morality. You know? And you're being told that this and that should be freed up to the market. Why? Because, I don't know, because people maximize the utility or whatever. So the whole thing kind of forms this kind of nexus of, of, of um, high-level moral authority, low-level sort of micro-moralities where you're, you know, you're, you're told about which should be what and, and all this kind of thing. I saw, for example, on The, um, on the Economist the other day uh, that they, they, they had this cover story and everything in it about, um, about why you should, uh, um, uh, what you call it, regulate and create a an efficient market in prostitution or something like that. And I flicked through and I said, oh, well, I wonder what the justification is going to be. And there's no justification. It's just kind of like, well, the market will be more efficient. I mean, look, I, it doesn't matter my opinions on that. You know, I mean, maybe I think the prostitution should be legalized as well. The point is that in order to make that case, we as a society have to, do, have to, um, have to make a decision about whether we, we, for example, have legal prostitution or illegal prostitution. And just saying that, oh, legalizing it, um, uh, uh, um, what do you call it, uh, um, creating a market and stuff will be a more efficient, you know, uh, uh, people would derive their utility. Like, what does that even mean? You know what I mean? I, it's just such a, it's such a sort of vacuous premise. And it just, uh, it kind of feels like at that level they're, they're kind of moralizing. So, to, to come back to the point, I suppose, the, the I, I, I'm not all too optimistic. I think I think no matter what happens, uh, there'll always be a kind of a, a kind of a um, cast of people who who wants this um, this this kind of uh, a, a deterministic, dogmatic, uh, moralistic um, ideology, and basically to wield power. I mean, that's not let's let's call a spade a spade. But I think it's become economics has become that. It's been that for quite a while now, but it's become really egregious in the past 30 years, and there's been no pushback against it. And I think there's a lot of people out there who don't have that kind of conception of the world and who have a more kind of open conception of the world, um, uh, what, you know, know that things are to a large extent in our own power and we have to make moral judgments about various things as a society. And I suppose my, my hope is that more of those people can see that there are components of economics that they can use 
in order to further their own goals. Whether they agree with mine or not, I don't really care. Maybe they'll end up being totally right-wing, I'm not very right-wing, whatever, everyone knows that. But, you know, maybe they will, and that's fine. But at least then we can have a real debate about it, rather than kind of bashing each other over the head with supposed truths that are derived from economic quasi-science. Like, I'm not interested in that. Economics is a should be a means to an end, but there should always be a a moral, political, social discussion between behind all of that, um, which is not to say, of course, that there aren't binding constraints on on our behaviour. Uh, economic constraints there are, and people need to understand them. But that stuff needs to be separated out. So my my kind of ideal would be to pull more people who have that more open mindset into economics. And I think a lot of them now shy away from economics. Uh, I did when I was younger, certainly. I, I did it, and then I dropped out of it because I thought it was so silly. And they tend to gravitate toward, you know, philosophy or sociology or something, psychology or something like that, where they find slightly more openness to the debate. And what I kind of want is for them to come back and, and to go into economics and realize that there are actually a very powerful set of tools there and a very powerful mode of rational inquiry there, um, which can be used to then raise questions about how we structure society, just to raise interesting questions about how the world works as well. We don't have to make any judgments on anything. Um, but I'd really like to see an economics that could accommodate people. I, I don't believe that economics will ever fully move away, and I don't believe any social science will ever fully move away from the kind of dogmatic deterministic model. I just don't think that will happen. I think that we, we got rid of, um, to a large extent, religion as a governing principle of society, and we've replaced it with something resembling science. I don't think that's ever going away. I think some people need that to a certain extent. But you can open up, a, you can kind of carve out a space within it for uh, for more open-minded inquiry. And I, I think that's what that's what I'm pre- trying to pursue. I think, and I will also say it existed before. That's a constant theme in this book. The only I draw a lot of historical um, quotes and everything like that from from economics books that books that you have to kind of dig out of library vaults now. And the reason is not just because some of them are interesting in their own right and should be read; they should. But um, also to show it, the economics profession was basically like this before. The 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 dogmatism only began to really set in in the 70s and 80s. It began, the kernel of it, which I trace in the book, and I can, we can go into detail about it if you'd like, the kernel of it was in uh, Paul Samuelson's textbook uh, just after World War II, and that's where it began, but it didn't exist then, and it only really came into being in the 1970s and 1980s. Prior to that, pretty much throughout time, going right back to Adam Smith, or you want to go further back to James Stewart or any of them, um, you have an economics that is kind of open, rationalistic inquiry. There's a lot of ideology there. There's no doubt about it. I, I, I have a chapter on comparative advantage in the book, which is the El Ricardo argument, and there's no doubt that that's shot through with ideology. There was ideology there, but it didn't become this kind of total ideology until the 1970s and 1980s. So I think there is a lot of hope to rewind back to what economics was between whenever we say it was founded, maybe with Aristotle, maybe with James Stewart, maybe with Adam Smith, um, between what happened from that starting point until, let's say, 1970, and what's happened from 1970 until today. So I think we can get back to that starting point. It'll never be free from ideology, and there'll always be kind of weird stuff and all that in there, and it'll always be used to justify power relationships and authority and moral norms and so forth. But 
we can go back and we can have that space card play for other people. I think. I hope. And what way did um, did you believe Paul Samuelson started this dogmatism in economics? Sorry, say that again. What makes me think that? Yeah, what was evident in Paul Samuelson's work in the 70s that believed you or was quite evident of dogmatism and to move away from the ideologies of Adam Smith and James Stewart? Right. So what happened with Paul Samuelson is really interesting. I actually spent a lot of time on it in the book. Um, I'll go more into the ideology side. There was, there was one side where he was trying to justify a political ideology, specifically Roosevelt's New Deal program. And that's quite explicit. He says it himself in an interview, I think, in the 1980s. That's worrying, the fact that he, he buried his preference for Roosevelt's New Deal program under a bunch of jargon that he created. And he seems to admit it, which is weird. Um, but you know, people can go and read that themselves and judge that part. That, that part just, that's just, to me, an example of how this sort of power can be abused and why it shouldn't be there in the first place. Caveat, by the way, I quite like Roosevelt's New Deal program as well. But if you want to make a case for them, make a case for them. Don't don't hide it under under something and 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 then use it as some sort of truth to beat up the other side. But what what really happened with Paul Samuelson was he introduced this new method into economics, and it was a very strange method because. Paul Samuelson thought it was a scientific method, but it wasn't a scientific method at all. I don't think Paul Samuelson had the first clue about what scientific method was. Um, it was basically this idea that you start out with these premises, uh, and then you just build arguments based on the on its own logical consistency with the premises that you started on building to ever different conclusions, um, and preferably using mathematical language to do this. And it, it's very interesting. There, there's no – Paul Samuelson says quite often that he doesn't want people talking about methodology. He doesn't seem to want to discuss the, the underlying um, premises that he, that he puts in place. And he, he, he really doesn't want to talk about the broader context with, within which any given specific individual problem should be located. And so what you get is this – what you get is a modern economic textbook, anyone that's opened that has seen it, that you kind of go and they tell you about the utility maximizing consumer, and that's a, that's a premise, it's a very dubious premise from a from an empirical point of view, from a, um, a methodological point of view, epistemological point of view, if you think through humans' capacities for knowledge, uh, uh, how, how people know the future, all those things, uh, it doesn't work, but you're given that and then you're told uh, about your supply and demand equations, and you kind of solve it, and you write it out, and it's almost like um, it's almost like learning. It, it always reminded me, and again, we're kind of talking about the old Reformation ideas. Well, it's a bit like learning Latin or something like that. If you, I learned Latin in secondary school, obviously Irish Catholic secondary school, um, I learned Latin, and I, I quite like Latin class actually, but. Um, uh, because we got to watch cool uh, Spartacus films and stuff every Friday. But, um, I, 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 so I don't, I don't have a bad experience of Latin or anything. And I understand why Latin will be taught in that way, because you're trying to learn a language. But in economics, you almost get the same sense, that you're, you're asked to be, like when you rattle off the, um, the, the what is it, the declinations, I can't remember now, um, where, where you go through the, genitive and the ablative and all that. It, it feels like that when you're doing a, um, a mainstream economic uh, textbook. It's, it's very odd. I, I had to do it the other day. My, my girlfriend's taking class in economics at the moment, and I was trying to help her with her microeconomics. And again, I just saw it. Like, 
I was actually kind of teaching it to her, and I've never taught microeconom- microeconomics or anything like that. And I could see it. Like, it was like, you don't have to actually understand anything beneath this. You just do these little operations or whatever. And the end result is, what's really interesting is it's not, it's not neutral at the end of the day. Because when you do those kind of little um, examples and you do the utility maximizer and then you, you draw your graph and you have the price and the quantity and this goes up and that goes up. When you do that, what you do is you form this amazing view of the world that this is actually kind of how things work. You're never really told specifically that it is how things work, but it frames everything that you then see. If you start understanding the world in that way of an equilibrating market with um, with a rational consumer who can um, who has who can see various you know see all the prices and everything like that. And I will say, somebody will come back and say, "Oh, we don't believe in any of that stuff anymore." I, I hate that argument because number one, they're still teaching it. Number two, when they do go to the more advanced ones with with information asymmetry and stuff, they're still, the framing of the world is still entirely the same. Like human calculators, you know, don't care about any context, whatever. I mean, it's still all the same. And, and all the notions about uh, future um, uh, cognitive, uh, sorry, future prediction and so forth, it all still holds no matter what they do with it. I've never seen, I've never seen it really change. So I really focus on the standard stuff in my book and some people, um, reviewers have kind of already said to me that I shouldn't have, but I, I don't, I don't agree with them. Anyway, but what, what the, um, but what, what's really funny about that is it totally frames the way you're, 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 um, you view the world and you end up in a situation where I guess the old phrase is, uh, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Because you have this kind of framework that you've built up from this textbook understanding, you go out into the world and you just kind of see everything in that way. And you begin to see um, uh, uh, all transactions between people as market transactions, which is not true. There's no basis. It's, it's not empirically true. It's not not epistemologically valid to infer one thing from another, but because you've been kind of steeped in this worldview, you begin to see everything in terms of that. And it's almost like I can kind of understand now how those old theological schools operated in the in the 13th, 14th, 15th century, that they just kind of teach these theologies to people and then everything would start to look like that. You know what I mean? And it really closes off your ability um, uh, to rationally inquire into things, and, and especially to critically in, 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 um, inquire into things. Economists tend to be extremely uncritical people in terms of just about everything, from what I can see. But um, because it kind of, the discipline also kind of filters out, as I said, critical people and sends them off into more, more critical disciplines because they can't put up with the rote learning. So it actually has its own selection bias in that way as well. But yeah, no, it, it was Samuelson that definitely drilled this in. I have a whole chapter on this, uh, on, on Samuelson and on the way that he drummed methodology out of it, how he hid um, every, everything under seemingly benign um, mathematization, all that. Um, I've given you some flavor of what I mean there, but I kind of go through it in one of the chapters of the book. But yeah, I I definitely peg it to his post-war textbook, which every other textbook that you have today, um, every other mainstream style textbook is just a replica of Samuelson's original. And in fact, usually a worse replica. Samuelson's textbook was very well written. So just to clarify um, your, your own personal thoughts on that, again, do you kind of disagree with the mathematization of economics and the methodologies that are applied and prefer to look at the philosophical and psychological thinking behind people's behaviors and how from there we 
may be able to determine certain outcomes that wouldn't have the predictability like a weather forecast a couple of days or a couple of events out? Well, I, I guess two things there. That is a good question. Actually. I, first of all, in the book, I really strongly make the case that we shouldn't be interested in human psychology as economists. Now, Paul Samuelson makes the same case, but then slips in a big utility maximizing psychology. Into it, so he's just lying. I actually mean it. I don't think we should be looking at individual behavior at all. I think that's what psychologists should do. I think if you want to do that, you should become a psychologist. I think that what economics can offer is aggregate outcomes of individual decision-making. So we, we can't really say anything about individual decision-making. We really can't. I wish I could. If I could, my, my life would be a lot easier. <laughs> I'd be able to get on with people a lot better because I'd know their decision. You know, if, if, if you had this comfort in the world, it would be a great thing if you could really understand decision-making. It's very, very, very hard to understand decisions made by other people. Perhaps a psychologist can come and tell me that it is possible on a one-to-one level. Perhaps. I'm, I'm not sure I'll fully buy it, but I'll definitely be open to the argument. What I do not believe is that we can get general principles of decision-making, which we can then apply to large groups of people. And that is what we need in economics. We, we do not have access to that, and we cannot have access to it. We cannot generalize about human decision-making. So... A much better way to do this is to say, okay, well, screw human decision-making then. I, I don't want to know about it. I'll leave that up to other people to figure out at an individual level, and they can put as much weight in those arguments as possible. And to be honest with you, I'll sit here and have a long conversation about psychology because I really like it, but I just, I just see the two things as being completely separate. In economics, what we should be doing, dealing with is completely different. We should be dealing with basically what macroeconomics deals with. It, it deals with aggregate decisions made by large aggregates of people. So I'll give you a concrete example of this and how it differs from uh, classifying a, a decision-making. So in, in, in your standard kind of um, economics textbook, decision-making at a microeconomic level is assumed to occur, as we've already said, through some sort of utility-maximizing framework. I won't go too much into what that means. I'm sure most people listening to this are familiar with it, but it makes assumptions about how humans behave, that they're rationalistic calculators, that they can put a number on everything and weigh them up against each other. And also, it, as I've said, assumes foreknowledge of the future and so forth, which economists will not tell you about, but it does. So that's fine. That, that's, what that, uh, that's how that views human behavior. If you, if you take in contrast a very basic precept of macroeconomics, which is called the consumption function, in, uh, in, in general macroeconomics, but it's mainly associated with Keynesian macroeconomics. And the consumption function is quite simply the amount that people will spend out of new income. So if I give you £100 uh, or €100 Euro, uh, and you spend half of it and save half of it, um, your, your um, marginal propensity to consume will be 0.5, it will be half, half of your income is spent. Now, what's really nice about the consumption function and like functions or like relationships is they don't say anything about why you spent the 50 quid, and they don't say anything about why you saved the 50 quid, because I don't care, I don't know. And what's really nice about that is we can then aggregate that up. So if you save, 50, so if there's two of us in the economy, I get 100 pounds, you get 100 pounds, you save 50 pounds, and I save 100 pounds, then the consumption function is the average and it's 75, right? We just aggregate across. We don't have to say anything about individual decision-making. We don't need to. We just completely abstract away from it. 
And with that framework, you can actually do a lot because it provides you with some powerful tools for understanding reality. For example, if you could estimate a consumption function. Now, I don't. I think that's particularly difficult, but that's another day's discussion. But if you could estimate a consumption function, um, you would then know how much the economic multiplier is. If you pour X amount of money into the economy, you'll know how much of it will be saved and how much of it will be spent, and you can calculate how much economic growth that would stimulate. Now, I think that's very difficult to do, probably impossible to do, but it's a lot closer to, you know, we can get a lot closer to that than talking about why you prefer bananas to apples and how you're, you know, that stuff is really silly, that micro stuff. It's it, it's too, too deterministic. It relies on too much um, uh, uh, um, deductivist reasoning. It just doesn't weigh up with reality in a lot of ways, whereas the consumption function sort of clean. We're making a sort of minimal of assumptions there. It's kind of like an Occam's razor kind of thing. We make the minimal of assumptions, but we come away with it with a very useful tool, which is consumption function, marginal propensity to consume, ultimately the multiplier, and then we can try and make, I suppose, forecasts. I'm not a big fan of forecasting, but we can at least conceive of using that to try and determine, you know, if the government starts spending more money, how much will economic output increase by? Now, again, I'm very, very skeptical of those types of studies, but at least we're moving in the right direction. And even if we can't estimate it, at least having that concept in our mind allows us to deal with reality a lot better. It, it clarifies something. It really clarifies your thinking on a certain, on a certain completely non-controversial topic. It's just a fact that if if you give someone income and they spend a certain fraction and save a certain fraction, then the consumption function exists. It, it just does. It's, it's almost like um, it's a tautology, but it's a tautology that has validity. The, the, the utility maximizing agent is a tautology that doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up when you scrutinize it theoretically, and it doesn't hold up when you scrutinize it empirically. The consumption function is a tautology, but it's one that just is by definition true. It's a bit like saying two plus two equals four. It just, it, it is true. It's, 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 it can't not be true, you know? So I think economics should move way more in that direction. And in the second half of the book where I go into like, it's, um, what I call stripped down macroeconomics, just winding it right back, trying to get rid of as many assumptions as possible. That's what I'm kind of interested in, stripping back as many assumptions as we can and seeing how much meat is left on the bone. And can I ask you a little bit about that? Because you're working in investment management. So obviously that has both micro and macro implications. But I don't know whether you're dealing with individuals and offering advice or you uh, aggregating the what you see in markets, in economies and giving advice on that or recommendations or putting kind of moving money around in certain sectors or uh, different parts of the world. So I'd, I'd love to see your own perspective from an investment management viewpoint and how it relates to what you were discussing just recently or in your book. Yeah, so, so I think this is this is what really hit home because even while I was writing, I wrote the book before I started working in investment. And I'm, I'm working here just to clarify, I am actually working as a macroeconomist for the most part. I mean, that's what most of my work involves. Um, I wrote the book before I got into investment, but I was very interested in investment. And I was interested in investment because it offered a uh, what I considered a challenge to be to apply this theory, economics in general, as neutrally as possible. 
Because if, if you're working for a government institution or something like that, you're usually going to have to tell a party line or, or, or your research is going to be set by some agenda or something like that. And I always saw investment as slightly more neutral in a sense because you're really, you really just have to get it right. There's no, there's no biases. There's no politics to it. You can hold your own political views and everything like that. And trust me, a lot of people do. But if it makes it, if it makes a difference to what you're actually thinking, then you're silly. You're not, you're not doing it right. That's like, like it's, it seemed a really objective space in which to kind of pursue this. And I've been very happy because it has been, it's been fully that. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be working here. I, I don't think I'd like as much to be working for um, government or anything like that. Just for that reason, not because I have any aversion to it. I, I think economic policy is extremely important and everything. But, um, yeah, so so that, that that's that's kind of something that I kind of deal with every day, and, and I've been working in investment now for nearly two years, and um, and I'm really glad to say my mind has not changed. I wrote that book just before I came here, um, and uh, barring some additions and so forth, and my mind has not changed one bit. And what's what's really impressed me is that pretty much everyone else doing the same or similar thing that I'm doing is approaching it the same way. No one uses any microeconomics, for example. It just doesn't exist. Occasionally, people will deploy the language of microeconomics. You see that quite a lot. And I just think that limits their vocabulary. I think that this kind of training in economics, when they apply that language, they could just express themselves better if they had a, had a broader view, maybe a psychological insight, sociological insights. Um, yeah, even just reading novels or something like that, you know, you get more color. You get more color from that. And a lot of the the, the, the kind of really popular investment guys who do newsletters that go out and talk to the press or something, they usually are just good communicators, you know, and, and they have a kind of a, a novelistic outlook on the world and they have a kind of broad-based view of human nature and so forth. Um, uh, but no one, no one formally uses any of the microeconomic stuff. I've never seen it done. It, it, you can't. It, it, it wouldn't work. What's really interesting is no one really formally uses macroeconomic models, large-scale macroeconomic models. Haven't seen it done much. Uh, I've seen it done once or twice, but it's rare. It's extremely rare. It doesn't really happen. Um, that's that's great for me because I, I think, and I go into a lot of it in the book, that, that large-scale ma- uh, modeling is a terrible idea because modeling requires um, overly restrictive deterministic um, assumptions that just won't hold. Um, so people are doing more so what I was getting at in my book, which is this kind of like you learn this set of tools and concepts. I gave you the example of the consumption function and so forth. Just these ways of structuring and thinking about the world. And then you go out and you dive into reams of macroeconomic data and you try and sort it, sort it out. And you try and figure out what's going on there. And I think that's pretty much what everyone is doing in, 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 uh, in, in, in the investment world. And what's really, really interesting actually, because I've had quite a bit of contact with policymakers and stuff like that, just conferences and that kind of thing. I, I had beforehand as well, but I, I, I do now, I guess it's part of my job in a sense. And what's really interesting is that although places like central banks or places like governments do actually employ people to do these kind of large-scale models, for example, or in the financial FSA over here, they do use um, microeconomic theory to try and incentivize um, behaviors and all that. Although they do do this officially, and if you go on their websites, 
and look at what they're doing officially, you know, the ECB will have a, a DSG model and, and they'll estimate parameters and all this and they'll do forecasts out of it. When you actually talk to the people behind the scenes or you go and you see what they're thinking about, they're thinking more in terms of this um, broader view the, of, of the world and, and having this set of concepts and being fluent in economic concepts and language and then kind of tackling real world problems uh, in light of that. Um, what's also really interesting and what, what the student movement has really taught me is that most people who work practically in any of these disciplines, in, in anything economics or finance related, are really, really disappointed with economic education. And, and that, that doesn't matter what their ideology is, and it doesn't matter how much they believe in mainstream economics, because a lot of them do actually believe in some of the mainstream stuff. But they are universally um, uh, saddened by the state of education and economics, and it's because they had the same experience. They've gone from a classroom where they're scribbling out this silly stuff that kind of just makes you, you know, more, it gives you a moral perspective on the world. And then they've hacked, they've been, they've been, I guess, kicked in the ass by reality and told to go out and sort out some real world problems. And they just don't see a fit between the two things. And what's really interesting is most of them fall back on kind of the basic Keynesian precepts that I was talking about, like consumption functions and stuff like that. So it seems to me far more um, interesting to really get at those bare bones um, uh, uh, components uh, and really, really try and get a grasp on them, understand them, get how to use them, um, become fluent in that kind of language, rather than this kind of model building and everything like that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that, that, that's really how, and, and, you know, anytime I'm doing research, that's exactly how I'm doing it. And actually, I, I think... I mean, other people will have to judge based on what I'm doing. But I think what's really given me an edge is that I was um, I was freed up from that that rigmarole of doing the kind of ideology based economics. And I really, really just spent my time when I was studying economics and thinking about it, just hunting out as much useful stuff as possible and having a really strong filter in place for nonsense and just tossing it to the side and ignoring it. Um, and I guess. I, to get back to the book, that was kind of what I was um, I was trying to give someone when when I was uh, when I was starting to study this. There was um, there was a few kind of critical books on the market. I think the best known, and probably still today, the best known is Steve Keen's Debunking Economics. But um, Keen's book's great for 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 as a critical overview. But what what frustrated me was there was nothing out there that really said, okay, well, what's really going on with this stuff. And, and what you know, what direction should it be taking? And that's what I was kind of trying to get out in the book. And that's why I'm kind of, I'm going to be. I think it's it's out in November. I'm going to be really interested to see the response. But my my prior is that the response is going to be extremely negative from academia. I, I think across the sphere because I think they're really wedded to that dogmatic stuff. And I think from pretty much anyone in pragmatic positions in finance and government and like that, I think they're going to see the rationale of what they're saying. And I don't think it's going to matter if they're Keynesians or monetarists or Austrians or anything else. Well, that's my hope anyway, but we'll see. So, so I think it does have, um, I think it has substantial, yeah, bearing on, 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 on what, what I do every day. But I, I can tell you, I've, I've only, I, I had to read through the, um, the uh, chapters there before I sent the, the manuscript off uh, to, to construct an index, and um, I have to tell you, my, I 
after working in it for two years, I, I agree more with myself two years ago than I did two years ago. You know Jack Schwager? Sorry? Market Wizards. Say that again? Do you know Jack Schwager from Market Wizards, author of Market Wizards? I don't know. Oh, no, it's just I interviewed him on a previous podcast episode 16, and he also came up with a book called Market Sense and Nonsense, How the Markets Really Work. And I say it's something that would really be interesting to you or people who might uh, be um, kind of from your own type of thinking and Steve Steve Keen's thinking on debunking economics. And he's looked at, for example, uh, he's called it the deficient market hypothesis as opposed to, and this is linking up with Paul Samuelson's uh, discussion earlier on where he looked at the efficient market hypothesis uh, and brought that to light again through the discovery of Louis Bachelier's work um, back in the early 1900s. But um, yeah, it's some, something I suppose I just put out there, maybe that you could you know, take a look at yourself because it has that investment uh, type of uh, slant to it as well. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not at all surprised. I, 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 I think there's quite a, I, I don't know that particular one, but my impression is that is, that's the general sense in markets, that they that people kind of treat all of that stuff with a fairly high degree of scepticism, I think. Healthy scepticism. What's unfortunate is that um, because economics has become so toxic in academia, is that um, the real stuff buried in economics, which would really make for better, well, in my opinion, better educated than everybody, <laughs> it, 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 people tend to kind of just bin it, you know? They just go, oh, well, there's nothing there. It can't work. And I don't think that's true. I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff in economics. And the last thing I say about that is that if you don't critically think about economics and you work in a sphere where economics matters on a daily basis, you will just instill a sort of um, a vulgar understanding of economics that you pick up from around you, like you, you absorb by osmosis, and it'll be the it'll be the most uncritical form. It'll be a kind of watered down version of the prevailing ideology of the times, and and so no one can avoid it. It's like you either you either go and you try and understand the ideology of the times, and then you're critical of it, and then you take your own perspective on it, or you join a different school, you do this, you do that. Or you kind of just sit back passively and you will start absorbing various stuff. Um, you know, money supply and inflation stuff, um, ideas about current accounts uh, uh, being due to um, excess, uh, ex- uh, deficiency of savings, all, all the current account deficits being deficiency of savings, all this kind of stuff that you will just absorb passively. So I think it's really important for practical uh, uh, people to really think critically about these. And, and I'm glad that you say that other people are, are writing books on it um, because if they if people just go, okay, well, we know all that economic stuff is rubbish. I'm a practical person. I'm not going to believe in that stuff. But you will absorb. You will absorb the dominant ideology at the time. So it's refreshing. But I think I think the crisis of 2008, um, the stagnation in the global economy, everything like that, it's encouraging people to uh, to to start looking at these things more critically. Yeah, which is fantastic. Can I ask you a number of quick fire questions, Philip? Yeah. Uh, but before I ask you, you know, when you mentioned the consumption function earlier on, I don't know if I have a correction here or not. Yeah. You were talking about you say, for example, you were saying that I could save if we both have a hundred pounds and I save fifteen, you saved a hundred. 
Yeah. Um, you mentioned the consumption was 75. Would that not be the savings? The consumption would be 25. Sorry, 75. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm an idiot. I, I can't do economics for the life of me. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, just, um, just a couple of fun questions, really. If you were on a flight home from London to Dublin, who would you love to, and it was a three-seater, who would you love to be sitting beside? Would you sit in the middle of the two people? Would you have the window seat? And would you be um, sitting in economy or first class? Or what economist is what I mean? Uh, do I have to pay for the first class ticket? Yes. Oh, well, then I'm obviously going to be sitting on economy if I'm going like the dog. Probably Ryanair as well. Um, I, do, uh, can the person be living or dead? Or can, do they have to be living or can they be dead? They can be both, yeah, one or the other. Uh, I, I think um, my favorite economist, GLS Shackle. That's the first, yeah. Probably, I'd imagine that is the first. And uh, I want the I want the aisle seat because I'll probably have a beer. Who is GSL, GLS Shackle? GLS Shackle is is this bizarre economist you know and can really play. He he's sort of known as a post Keynesian, but other people think he's an Austrian. Um, he he's he's the economist that most worked on questions of expectations, decision making, determinism, and free will in economics. And his work is sadly neglected today. But um, uh, I don't know if I ever if I ever make a fortune, I'm opening a bloody GLS shackle museum or something because he needs to be read. But but he it's very understandable why he's currently not read. Uh, his the way he talks about things would be completely alien to most people who've studied economics. But not and then, and then if people who haven't studied economics read him, there's too much economics in there for the philosophically minded you know so so yeah if, if i can if i can dig up uh gls shackle and make him walk again uh i've to do it but we'll see and what would you ask him oh uh, good question uh oh well it's a very specific and nerdy question um i'd ask him why he wasn't satisfied with uh nicholas caldor's business cycle theory that is a terrible answer isn't it <laughs> why does he have to make an expectations-based Anyway. Oh, also, why did he think Harrods was the theory of long-run growth when it was clearly a business? These are awful. Why do <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guess I had to read them to understand no what you're on about. No one to listen to that, what recommended book would you have other than your own when it gets released? A second copy of my own. No. <laughs> um, uh, and then a third. Let me think. The best book ever written for anyone who wants to think about anything, uh, who wants to... For me, it's the most challenging book I've read in the sense that I've I've can't I've never gotten away from any of the arguments in it is the philosopher, Irish philosopher, George Berkeley's um, Principles of Human Knowledge. Uh, it's short, it's extremely well written, and it is just he I don't know why George Berkeley isn't known as the Kant or the Descartes. He he's he's the most important philosopher I think ever. And uh, I don't know why people haven't don't pay more attention to him. Uh, he's snickered at in in, uh, in in philosophy classes. He's mentioned for his um, his idealistic arguments, um, his 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 ide- idealism or whatever, which is very different from general ide- idealism. But anyway, um, uh, he's snickered at, but I, I think he should be taken fully seriously. Uh, it, it's also laid out in more literary form in dialogues between Hylos and Philona. In fact, if I was going to tell anyone to read either, I'd probably tell them to read the dialogues because it's 
kind of more accessible. But the principles is is absolutely fantastic. And it seems that um, Berkeley is rising again, or Berkeley, as some English people call him, but we're allowed to call him Berkeley, um, because he's actually Irish, so screw you people. <laughs> but uh, he, um, uh, there seems to be more interesting uh, interest in him now. There's a fantastic book on him, for anyone who's interested, called um, Metaphysics for the Mob uh, by a, an American. Uh, um, sorry, sorry, could you repeat that? Meta- it's called Metaphysics for the Mob. Um, and the reason the title is because Berkeley is absolutely brilliant, and he one of his famous quotes is, "I side with the mob in all things." Um, and he's alluding to the fact that that he really doesn't like, and you'll probably see this theme from what we've just been talking about. He really doesn't like uh, dogmatic, uh, 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 academic kind of pretensions, whether that be from um, from uh, from religious institutions, and he himself was a Protestant bishop, or whether it be from uh, scientific institutions, and he himself was a scientist um, uh, and mathematician. Uh, he, he doesn't like either of them, and he tends to, to much more so favor intuitive common sense understanding. Um, so, so hence metaphysics for the mob. But uh, uh, yes, so Berkeley. And actually, now that I think about it, I don't want to sit with GLF Shackle anymore. I want to sit with Berkeley. But, <laughs> I can make it there and have a chat. But, Actually, that would be I, I did say I did say three seats anyway, so you could sit in the middle of the two. Then I won't be able to have a beer because I won't be having all seat and I won't yeah, be able to get up. But uh, yeah, no, okay, between the two of them, that's fine. I'll let them talk. Actually, I'll just let them sit to next to each other and I'll just listen to them. That would be very interesting. Great, great. Philip, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me in Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners where they could find you. I did mention your website already and I'll just mention it again, fixingtheeconomist.wordpress.com. The, the blog is not, no longer being updated, but there's a ton of articles on there if anyone wants to scroll through them. Uh, I don't write so much anymore now that I'm working so- yeah, and maybe I don't know. I'll probably do some talk show over there. I, I I don't really know. I, I have I've been a bit I've been a bit silent for the past year and a half, but uh, um, hopefully with the book release there'll be some noise. Otherwise, there's, there's an archive on my site. Which feel free to scroll through. There's plenty of absolutely rubbish on there and some good stuff. <laughs> you can find all the links to Philip on economicrockstar.com forward slash Philip Pilkington. Philip, thank you so much for being so so generous with your time. You are an economic rock star and have a great weekend. That's fantastic. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.